Now hear a reading from Romans, uh, a bit of chapter 12 and a bit of chapter 14. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment, as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. And jumping down to chapter 14, he says, Now, receive the one who is weak in the faith, and do not have disputes over differing opinions. One person believes in eating everything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not despise the one who does not, and the one who abstains must not judge the one who eats everything, for God has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on another's servant? Before his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day holier than other days, and another regards them all alike. Each must be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day does it for the Lord. The one who eats, eats for the Lord because he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains from eating, abstains for the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and none dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he may be the Lord of both the dead, and the living. But you who eat vegetables only, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you who eat everything, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. Therefore, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us, each one, about your word? Lord, tune our hearts to you. Let us hear what you, uh, what you are saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, these chapters, Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and kind of 16, but really 12 through 15, are like an instruction manual to use the gift that we've been given. The first 11 chapters describe the gift in great detail, help us really understand what we've been given, and then we need to use it. And the first way that we learned about how we use it is, is the gospel is sort of like receiving a, a, a baseball and a mitt for a gift. It's, it's nice, but you need someone else to play. We have to use it together. That's the first piece of the gospel. We use it in community. 
The second question is, what sort of community do we use the gospel in? And last week, we looked at this stunning idea from uh, theologian Shirley Guthrie, and I want to show it to you again. It's worth looking at more than once. He says, the church is a community of people who know they are sinners, freely admit that they are not good or superior, and take responsibility for their sinfulness without blaming someone else for it. The church is the only club in the world that accepts as members only those who are not qualified to belong to it. Again, I'm I could use that every week. I just love that picture of who we are called to be. You see, the second way we use the gift of the gospel, the type of community that we are, the way we use the gospel together is humbly. We must use it in humility. Um, St. Augustine thought humility was fairly important. Look at this. If you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, third, and always, I would answer humility. That's pretty strong. I mean, if you're reading Romans, you might say uh, love. You love one another is a good precept. You might say faith. Uh, Why would Augustine make such a huge claim? Well, by Augustine's own own account. Sorry, I always say it, you know, Augustine, and people say I should say Augustine, so I'm going to switch back and forth. By his own account, that guy uh, says the letter to the Romans was the most influential book in his life. In fact, that was the moment of his conversion when he read the letter to the Romans. And, And even though Paul settles on love as the precept of the Christian religion in chapter 13, The place Augustine gives humility shouldn't surprise us if we consider the big picture of Romans. And so let's just, I'm just going to walk you through the big picture one more time. Again, this is sort of repetition, but my goal is that we internalize it. He starts off by saying, the gospel is the good news that the long-awaited king the Jews were waiting for has come in Jesus, and he's been resurrected, and that in his death, the righteousness of God was revealed and made available to everyone who put their faith in him. That's the baseline of the good news. And then he says, well, who needs this news? Well, sure, definitely the lost crooked Gentiles need it. You know, those who worship idols and misuse their bodies, they really need it. Oh, and also um, the Jews who look down on the Gentiles and judge them while they do the exact same thing, they need it too. And, And in case you can't keep score the way Paul's first readers keep score, Jews and Gentiles is a way of saying everybody, everybody. In other words, he says, none of us stands on our own righteousness. The only real righteousness we have is pure gift, something we've received. It's given to us through King Jesus. No one can boast. Entry into his kingdom can only come from him. But then he has to wrestle with the fact that we've received the righteousness, we've received the gift, and yet we're still prone to live as if we hadn't. Submit ourselves to the law and the flesh. So we're dependent on him constantly, and he's constantly generous, Paul says. So, okay, that's great. So can we take that for granted? No. 
God's plan of salvation from the beginning, going back to Abraham, looking at the story of Pharaoh and the Exodus, it demonstrates that both his choosing of people and his hardening of people were done in order to advance his plan. In other words, he's God, we're not. Therefore, we cannot treat his gracious choice lightly. Generous mercy is in itself a call for humility. God's gift goes beyond our expectations. It's not fair. It's up to him. And so boasting is impossible in light of this news. And therefore, Augustine and Paul call their readers to humility. Paul takes all that and applies it to our life in chapters 12 through 15. And gosh, if you, if you just run through chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, it's remarkable how much he applies it. It, it. He starts by saying the gospel compels us to become living sacrifices who discern God's will. And whatever else that means, it certainly means that recipients of the gospel have to lay down our lives in response to it. The gospel reminds us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Uh, after all, the righteousness, it's not mine. It's a free gift. He says the gospel teaches us to recognize God as the giver of gifts. The measure of faith God has given to us is a, it's a challenging idea. He says, you know, think in terms of the measure of faith. Does that mean one has more faith than the other? I think that's calling us to recognize how far God has reached to us. You know, my own righteousness measured 0, 0.0 on any scale. His gift is infinite. That's the measure of faith given to us. So Jesus said to his followers, freely you've received, freely give. He goes on to say in community, the gospel invites us to eagerly honor one another. The only way we compete with one another is by honor, is seeing who can honor the others more. We give respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. In fact, the nature of the gospel, in a, in a sort of a strange twist in the middle of chapter 13, he says, it allows us to be subject to governing authorities, which is a challenging idea. Maybe not challenging in a democracy like the one we're used to, but challenging all over the world and all throughout history. But here's the thing. The gospel does not grow when believers gain political power. In fact, it grows when oppressive governments try to crucify it. That's how it's been growing from the very beginning. The gospel puts us in debt to God who transfers that debt to our life in community. We forever owe one another a debt of love. And in light of the gospel... There's, we heard today this, this call away from judgment. You know, you, you may have a conviction this way, you may have a conviction that way, but who are you to judge the one who feels the other way? It, judgment is an act of pride. It tears a community apart. I cannot obey chapter 14 if I think that I'm better than my brother or sister who is trying to follow the Lord in a different way than me. We cannot hold ourselves above one another based on ceremonial differences. We have to recognize that we're all servants of one master and he's the judge. So we don't need to be. 
We live as to the Lord, not to ourselves. We, we lay down our freedoms to keep from distressing our brothers or sisters in their faith. We have a call not to speak evil of one another's freedom and call, and, and call good evil. I mean, gosh. It, in, in fact, Paul lands the plane in, in this section of Romans at, at, in chapter 15 the way I try to land every sermon. He brings it back to Jesus. He, all this call about vegetables and which day you take as a day of rest. And, and he says, after all of it, for even Christ did not please himself. But just as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Jesus received us, therefore we receive one another. He became the servant of the circumcised and the uncircumcised, therefore we become the servants of all. Let me summarize the Christian life is a humble life. It is. Now, I don't want to shock you here, but it is possible for Christians to become quite arrogant <laughs> and judgmental. But that is not the work of grace. In fact, a person cannot live a truly obedient life, a life where they are living in step with the Spirit without humility. Look at this quote from theologian Simon Chan. He says, knowing God's will, and you know, how could you be obedient without knowing God's will? Knowing God's will is not just a matter of grasping a piece of information. It has to do with our whole attitude toward God and ourselves uh, with an ongoing relationship with God and loving him. All of it comes down to humility. If I see myself in reality and I see God in reality, I am leveled before him. So here's the rub. Humility is something that you cannot grow in if you're aiming at humility. The more you try to be humble, the more you're going to miss. In fact, the more focused on yourself you will be. You'll be turned inward and frustrated every step of the way at all these people who are making it hard for you to be humble. The way to humility is actually surprisingly simple. It starts with confession and it blooms in community. This is the way to humility. So humility begins in confession. It's an admission of both my sin, that's half the confession, and God's goodness and glory, that's the other half of our confession. Confession is only half complete if you just see what a mess you are. <laughs> it's complete when you see how good he is. But in a, in a letter C.S. Lewis wrote to an American friend, he, he writes this to her. He says, try not to think, much less speak of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And if, on consideration, one can find no faults on one's own side, then cry for mercy, for this must be a most dangerous delusion. Sorry, typo there. So let's go back to Augustine. I actually didn't get that quote uh, from reading Augustine, lest you think I'm you know, doing well reading my fourth century theologians. Um, I, got it, I got it from uh, John Calvin. So, you know, 16th century, a little more recent. Calvin goes on at explaining, you know, this whole study of Augustine. He says, 
Um, and this quote isn't on the slides, okay? Um, he says, Augustine does not consider it humility when a man, aware that he has some virtues, abstains from pride and arrogance, but when man truly feels that he has no refuge except in humility. By God's mercy alone we stand, since by ourselves we are nothing but evil. If you want a picture of Calvinism, that's a pretty good one. At this point, Calvin says, then let us not contend against God concerning our right, as if what is attributed to him were withdrawn from our well-being, as our humility is his loftiness, so the confession of our humility has a ready remedy in his mercy. Friends, believers, our neighbors are not drawn to Christ through us when they sense that we're holding ourselves above them. It's when they see people who are stunned by the holy God who stooped so low out of his love for us. That's when the aroma of Christ, I think, can become the sweetest. You see, the gospel presented by Paul in Romans is nothing if not a total equalizer. Several years ago, we did a, a joint foot washing service. There were a few uh, churches there, and I, you know, I knew a lot of the people. It was wonderful to do this. Um, if you've never been to a foot washing service, we do it during the season of Lent, during Holy Week, and it is just incredibly beautiful and awkward. Because at a key point in the service, you will be invited to turn to someone near you and say, hey, can, can we walk up front and I wash your feet? <laughs> You know, do you mind just taking your shoes and socks off for me? You know, it's, it's awkward. Um, but one man in attendance, I, I happened to know a bit about him. Uh, he was at the pinnacle of his career. At that time, he was the CEO of a large organization. That year, he had advised the governor of Colorado and members of the British Parliament. Everyone who knows this guy quickly respects and enjoys him. And then, I, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of aware of people like that. You know, it's, that's, I'm sorry. That's how it works. But uh, that night I noticed him walking up to a foot washing station, and he was with another man that I knew. This other guy spends most of his time alone. He has a lot of difficulty communicating, perhaps uh, for a number of reasons, but his high anxiety is one of them, and people can feel it, and, um, and they tend to avoid him. This second guy out of the two is the one who's quick to give advice and exert his opinion whether you wanted it or not. He's fairly slow to listen, and I am not talking about myself, though I could be. That night, I watched the man at the pinnacle of worldly power get on his knees and tenderly remove the shoes of the second man and wash his feet. I think the only thing that that guy would change about that is that I saw it and, and asked him about it. Uh, for him, it was about showing love and honor to the second man. He was following a nudge of the Spirit that entire act was his confession. The best he deserved was to serve his fellow man. 
I mean, this, this has been the message of Christian leaders, writers, thinkers, and saints throughout history. Lifelong missionary Andrew Murray wrote a book called Humility. But he says, humility is the cardinal virtue, the only root from which the graces can grow, the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus. So we experience humility when we see ourselves and we see the Lord. But the only way we can live it out, the only place humility actually blooms is in community. Now, there's not many things I would change about this church, but one of the things I would change, would change is there's just not enough NBA fans in this church. It, it really is a problem. Um, so could you work on that for me? Um, so it's possible not many of you know about Tim Duncan. Tim is uh, nearly seven feet tall. He's a former uh, NBA basketball player. Uh, frankly, he's He's an above-average athlete. I mean, he played in the NBA, obviously. He's, a, he's an above-average athlete. Uh, and being that tall and an above-average athlete, it, you know, it's not a huge surprise that he made it to the pro basketball level. It is a surprise when you consider his athleticism compared to a lot of other guys who play in the league that Tim Duncan is now regarded as the best power forward ever to play. He led the San Antonio Spurs to five championships. He was the finals MVP three times, the NBA MVP two times. He was the college player of the year. In fact, if I listed off all of his awards, it would take this entire sermon for me to do that. Yet Tim Duncan was boring to watch. He never added any pizzazz to his game. You know, why do a windmill dunk when a simple layup will do? If you don't know what a windmill dunk is, I don't know what to do for you at this time. I mean, he was boring to watch for anyone outside of people who lived in San Antonio or basketball purists or anyone from Indiana, um, a.k.a. basketball purists. Um, he simply did not care about his own stats ever. He never cared about them. I, I don't think when I, when I, I watched several interviews of Tim Duncan you know, because I got excited about this. Um, he, he, I don't think he even thought about his own stats. He thought of the team constantly. His act of confession was his willingness to learn. And, and you need to understand the impact of this. I know I'm going way too far on a, on a basketball illustration here, but while Tim was playing with the Spurs, there were a few years while he was playing with them where there were other teams who had better records than the Spurs. But over the course of a decade, the San Antonio Spurs were not just the winningest team in, in the NBA. They were the winningest professional sports team in the world. Their coach is regarded as one of the greatest coaches in history because of that era. And the reason their coach, Greg Popovich, uh, was so effective can be tied directly to Tim Duncan. Here's what Tim Duncan's agent said. He said, Popovich got to coach the whole team through Tim. He got to coach through Tim. A lot of, if you follow pro sports, a lot of stars, they get, they're so good that the coach has to coach around them. 
kind of let this person do their thing, and then let me tell the other players what to do. But Tim was the focal point. Uh, uh, Greg Popovich always gave instructions to and through Tim. Tim bore responsibility for the rest of the team. That, that team now has three guys in the Hall of Fame, Tim and two other guys. And I don't mean any, any disrespect to the other two, but they wouldn't be members of the Hall of Fame if they hadn't have played with Tim Duncan. Who they are as players reached their full potential alongside a truly humble star who rarely thought of himself. His focus was the team. Okay, I'm done with the basketball analogy. But I know it was awesome, so. <laughs> Speaking of humility, now tie this to humility in a community centered around Jesus. If Paul's gospel, especially his news about the spirit that's described in chapter 8, is true, then our team has a coach who is active in our lives. Does the coach have to coach around you or can he coach through you? When we are focused on the team, when we're taking responsibility for the team, the coach can coach through you. And you experience joy that Tim experienced. The winningest pro sports team over a decade. C.S. Lewis says it better than I can, so listen again to C.S. Lewis. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, schmarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Christian humility begins with denying our own claims to righteousness, but it grows as we celebrate that gift flowing through us to our community. For the righteousness of God is the hope of the world. Tim Duncan never pretended to be bad at basketball. One more illustration that is, you know, one that Mike loves and hopefully a couple of you love. But I, this, all of this got me thinking about my favorite television show, um, The West Wing. Uh, it's a fictional show that follows the staff of the president. Uh, and in one episode, two staffers are on the road in Indiana. It's a big day for you Hoosiers. Um, so at the beginning of the episode in the morning, these two guys are throwing rocks and they like, you know, they're wasting time throwing rocks at a bucket. They have a contest and they say the winner of the loser of this contest has to spend the rest of the day introducing yourself like, hi, I'm so-and-so and I work in the White House. And they understood that that was an awkward and unbecoming way to flaunt their position. For most people, it's like, oh, okay, cool, you know. Um, after a long day in which the loser has to do that many times, they're finishing the day at an airport bar, their flight's delayed, and they meet a man who, who is doing everything he can to put his kids through college, but it's just not 
enough, and he's feeling crushed by it. These two staffers look at each other, and the one who'd lost the contest turns to the man. The other one is saying, hey, you don't have to say it. You don't have to say it. But he turns to the man, and he says, hi, I'm Toby Ziegler, and I work in the White House. In other words, I am connected to the very institution that can help you in this situation. What would in many cases come across as self-aggrandizement was in that moment an act of humility. It wasn't about him. It was a way about, it, it was about the way his team could serve. Gosh, community, being on a team, it has a way of inviting humility, doesn't it? I mean, if my goal is the glory of God and the purity of the church rather than my own glory, it, it's really devastating when, when somebody helps me discover ways that I'm holding us back. The ways I'm hurting the mission. Selfishness, pride, laziness, fear, greed. Each one of these are exposed as we try to do this together. In fact, that's what was happening for the church in Rome. They're trying to be obedient together, and they have some strong opinions that they disagree about, about how tightly they should hold to the, the Jewish ceremonial rules. Do we eat this way, the, you know, uh, sort of kosher? Do we, do we follow Sabbath on Saturday, or, or do we do it differently? And they have really strong opinions, and they're arguing over these, and the, the church is at risk of being ripped apart. Paul doesn't come in and say, hey, look, because of Jesus, it's, uh, you know, the day doesn't matter. The food doesn't matter. He says, take care of each other. Choose instead of trying to be right while the other one's wrong in, in their attempt to be faithful to God. Choose instead to support each other's attempts to be faithful. Help them be the best player they can be. Serve one another. The glory of Jesus depends on it, not on which side wins about Saturday or Sunday or vegetables or meat. Look, you may understand the gospel to be the completion of the Sabbath command, but if your brother's faith would be damaged by being pushed off of Saturdays, let it go, Paul says. Serve him. Help him honor the Sabbath. It's not your job to relax her standards. And if you feel the gospel requires you to eat a very careful diet that honors the creator, but, but your brother eats more casually as a celebration of, his, of the grace given to him, then help him celebrate the grace that's given to him. Let it go. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, Paul writes. So let's help each other stand confidently there. We must determine never to place an obstacle or a trap before our brother or sister, Paul says in chapter 15. What's his point? If the gospel is true, I'm free to think of the team to make their success my goal. When I forget about myself, I can be fully for you and about you and for the glory of Jesus. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us. 
What is this season if not a celebration of the humility of King Jesus? I mean, we're telling stories of him gathered in a, in a barn with animals at his birth. That is what this season is. Born into a, a weak people who were not even citizens of an oppressive empire. For Christ did not please himself, but just as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. You want to grow in humility? Look at Jesus. Confess. And then be about the team. That's where it grows. Jesus set a pretty good example on the night that he was betrayed when he took the bread and having given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you know what he did after supper? He put a towel around his waist and he washed everyone else's feet. He taught us how to make our true confession. Serve one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the incredible gift that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord. You have stooped so low. In fact, you took our position. You associated with the lowly. And now we have the joy of doing the same thing. So, Lord, let us be, no matter what our worldly power is, let us be a people who associates with the lowly. And let us be a people who grow in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.